Hey, Ginger. Hey, Esther. How's it going? It's going awesome. We're in the Hollingsworth Farm in Renton, Washington, and we are on a whirlwind tour here of um, this part of the country. We just left Vancouver. Um, we were on Victoria Island, and then we drove about three and a half to four hours last night in the pitch black highways of Washington to get to Renton so we can be here at the Hollingsworth Farm, which is one of the only in the United States of America, black owned cannabis farms. I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And I'm Esther Ikoro, And we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. There are places I would be and the faces I would see. One day will come and I'll be free. Joy Hollingsworth is in her sixth year as a chief operating officer of Hollingsworth Farm. She has created numerous innovative processing techniques to maximize company efficiency. She is also in charge of branding, marketing, logistics, and creative development. Her love and appreciation of cannabis began when she firsthand saw how the plant provided immediate long-term relief to her disabled mother, aging grandmother, and paraplegic uncle. After a stellar high school sports career, Joy continued to earn honors as a collegiate student athlete of the University of Arizona women's basketball team where she graduated in 2007. She went on to play professionally in Athens, Greece and earned her master's degree in education from the University of Washington. She worked as an assistant women's basketball coach at Seattle University until joining her brother in the cannabis industry. Wow, Joy Hollingsworth. I have been looking for this company for the last year because in Illinois, we don't have legal cannabis, but we will starting January 1st. And so I've been wondering all the people that have licenses or that are applying for licenses in our state are first of all not african-american and they're definitely not women so i thought you know what we need to like go on a on a journey and on an epic mission to find out what black person is really in the supply chain the wealth generating you know self-determination space of cannabis and here we are with joy hollingsworth which is like Absolutely astonishing because, you know, she's got this amazing t-shirt on that says plant. She's got Yay. the cutest hoop earrings and we're in her office, their distribution warehouse. So welcome, Joy. Thank you so much, Esther and Ginja. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> um, we're at our distribution center in Renton, Washington, where we manufacture all of our hemp CBD products. And our farm is in Shelton. Um, which is uh, 90 minutes outside of Seattle. So we're, we're, I'm super happy to be here, uh, super happy to sit in with some queens of color. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. So, you know, first of all, we have to give some credit. So I found you because there's a woman in Illinois that works in the cannabis industry. Can you talk a little bit about her? Because I reached out to her and I said, hey, do you know any black women in cannabis? And she did. Yeah, it, it's crazy. Um, Lisbeth found us uh, via the internet. And she hit us up and said that she was doing this amazing marketing, can you marketing online, and asked if we could do an interview to speak to talk about different things in the cannabis industry, what we go through as people of color, especially female people of color. And so we talked about that and gave like a probably like a 20 minute 
uh, interview about how to get into the cannabis industry and touching the plant. So actually being on the farm, the soil, the plant, all that branding. Lisbeth is from Illinois. So her company is called Canna Marketing U. It's Lisbeth Vargas, and she's actually a strategist and founder of this company. And um, what do you know about her? So she works in the cannabis industry. She's a woman as well. Absolutely. Uh, Female of color, put on this event, was very strategic about promoting people of color in the industry. You don't see that a lot when you have a lot of these conferences and a lot of these, you know, different meetings and so forth. And so she was very strategic about intentionally getting those people in the industry, especially women of color, to be able to give advice to people, talk about what they're doing, because everyone wants to get into this green rush of cannabis. And you see a lot of people of color, black folks especially, and they want to get into the industry to help create generational wealth for their families and their generation. So she was um, very instrumental about getting me on board and you know, they had a great turnout. It was amazing. It was all online because a lot of times logistically people can't get to certain places. So doing it online, I believe that's one of the first of its kind for people to have access to that amount of speakers, that amount of information. So it was dope. That is great that there is a, a, a budding community of people of color, especially um, with an emphasis on women, trying to figure out how to build generational wealth through this green rush, you right. said. Um, I've never heard it referred to that way, but it makes absolute sense because this industry is really in a sweet spot right now. Right. And so people who are jumping in are, are, are having an opportunity to get here before the barriers of entry go up. So can you just tell us a little bit about how a black family comes to own a cannabis company? Crazy. Okay, so 2012, three things happen. Uh, legalization of cannabis in Washington State, which is called I-502. The second part was Barack Obama got reelected. And the third piece was legalization of gay marriage. I'm queer, so I've loved all three. We're black, we love Barack Obama. And you know, my parents have been involved in cannabis recreationally for a minute. You know, they, That was the first person I smoked cannabis with was my mother at the age of 22. And so my brother sat down with me. He said, hey, I wanna, we want to get into the cannabis industry. He was already in the medical market. Um, we sat down as a family. We all decided. We prayed over it. We all decided that, hey, this is something we want to do. I was still very nervous about it, but there was a point of no return. The point of no return is when we purchased the land. When we purchased the land, we knew we had to own the land. We had to own whatever we were on because ownership, having your own land, being able to pass that down, that's one of the things in life that continues to appreciate over time. And so we bought the land, that was point of no return. And I said, hey, Raph, uh, I'm all on board. And that was back in 2014, as when we put our first plant in the ground, we were the first licensed recreational legal cannabis farm in the country, black owned. And so we put that plant in the ground. And back in 2015, uh, we had our first uh, sale for cannabis in the state of Washington. Wow. There is a lot that we have to go back. Lord have mercy. Where do we start? That I can put a pin in right there. First of all, the first time you smoked was with your mom, right? which is getting less and less taboo because when I sit back and I think about the way that cannabis is being used from a medicinal perspective, it becomes less of a a taboo topic. But can you give me some context around how that happened when you were 22? So I used to play basketball and play basketball in college and I wasn't allowed to 
have cannabis and I was considered probably a square. People didn't, you know, it was like, I was scared. First time I saw weed was actually when I was in middle school and I thought it was some herbs. I was like, oh, that looks like some nice oregano. I didn't know. But then moving forward, I experienced it because my mom said, hey, I've been waiting for this moment my whole life and I want you to try this. I smoked some of her stuff. I fell to the ground, never felt that sensation before. And she told me to get my butt up because that was only one hit. And uh, my first introduction was her smoking and um, she uses it for scoliosis. She has really bad scoliosis and she uses it to manage her pain. And a lot of the first introduction chart for our family in cannabis was all medical. So my grandmother who's 99 uses it every day. My mother has scoliosis really bad. And then my uncle who's paralyzed from the neck down, he uses cannabis, excuse me. That's how we launched our CBD hemp brand because my aunt got into the, the medical. She's from the executive industry with Boeing. She's retired, been retired for years and she got into it to help replace a couple of prescription drugs for his being paraplegic. Wow, that is a really amazing origin story. And I found more and more, and we found more and more through our research that a lot of people first are introduced to cannabis from the medical perspective. Right. But I want to go back and talk a little bit about this idea of sitting down with your entire family. Because it's one thing to say, okay, I've got inspiration from this origin story that I have a familial connection with. I'm going to start a business around it. But what was the inspiration for saying we're doing this collectively as a family together? Yeah, well, the thing is, is we knew that we could not do this alone. <coughs> Raph knew that if we did this, we had to do this as a family. And a lot of the inspiration for our family, because people said, oh, you know, did you guys start back in 2013? I always bring it back to my grandmother, who was born in South Carolina, uh, 1920. She was born on the same farm as her ancestors were slaves. So her family were slaves on that same farm she was born on. Um, she was born in the South, went to Payne College. She was the first black female to graduate from the University of Washington School of Social Work. She sat on the school board, Seattle, Washington. So it was like, you know, that was our inspiration because I feel like knowing your history reveals your potential greatness. And she taught us that from her, from her early age. And going back to that, knowing that, yo, if she could be the first black to do so many things, why not us? Why can't we be the first black to do certain things? And so that was our inspiration for sure. Tell me how your brother is involved in the company, because you said he was already in the medical growing space. Right. And so is he the the bio and science brain? Because I see a lot of innovation going on when I look at your, your website, when I explore your company, it seems very science-based, very tech-based. So who's the nerd and, and what is the approach to, to that process? Oh, absolutely. Raf's the nerd. So Raf's for sure the nerd. He's always been super, super smart. In fact, a quick fact about him that a lot of people don't know that he could have skipped high school and went straight to college because he was so smart. He scored higher on an SAT than I did when I was in my senior year of high school when he did in sixth grade. So he's like super, super smart. There's always stuff flowing through his head. And so he was the inspiration behind it. He was in the medical field in Seattle for a long time, growing underground in Seattle you saw a lot of black growers growing underground and into the medical industry. That was the medical market, a lot of, of black growers. Um, and so Raph was in that mix and he was doing that. And so when this opportunity came to become uh, legal, 
that's when he said, okay, this is our opportunity to be able to, to do that. And so he's the brains behind that piece. He does all the growing outside. He does all the big vision. I'm the operations person. I'm doing everything from A, B, C, D, making sure stuff gets done, making sure the branding's on point, making sure logistically what stuff looks like, uh, making sure whatever dream he has potentially can come through with the operations piece. So we do, we have a good connection with each other just because it's a great balance. But, um, you know, sometimes we fight and I quit every day or get fired, but that's what, that's what family business is. Yeah. And that's, that's really interesting because I know a lot of people start businesses at their kitchen table, especially with the small business owners that we um, talk with. And they sometimes end up pulling in either close friends or members of their family. Did you always know that you were going to be on the operation side of things? How did you end up divvying up the work to make it functional for your dynamic? We just kind of flowed into that, that scene. When we first started, it was all hands on deck. So I was outside watering plants. We were all trimming. It was a group effort, all hands on deck. Didn't matter and then as we continued to like find our niche in the market and like morphed as a company then it was very very different um, and so I kind of slide into this operations piece Raf kind of did everything outside that's what he was really really good at and then my dad he did all the sales so imagine a 65 year old going around to all these dispensaries in Washington State with his cane talking about I got that loud and everyone, you know, they listened to him because they were like, who's this Who's this black guy, 65, talking about he guys, you know, some loud. So we, you know, we, we coached him into how to talk to people and connect with uh, all the uh, buyers. I'm kind of curious about something. Just to level set, I don't smoke marijuana. I have no context around cannabis at all. That's a word that I just learned, you know, a few years ago. Like, I mean, everyone's laughing, but like, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, Esther, okay, don't. my co-host. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, you can laugh if you want. I knew you were going to say on the other hand, if me. You can, I knew it. I'm like, she's going to say on the other hand. You can I know laugh, it. but, you know, Esther, on the other hand, is is slightly different. I mean, she's, mm-hmm. she's first of all, she's younger than me, and she has a different um, appreciation for cannabis than I do. So what I want to ask you is, because you're talking about a generation and generations of cannabis users. I'm not really clear on the timeline. So, you know, cannabis is becoming, you know, legalized all over the country. Right, right. You were involved in it before it was legal? No, actually, no. I didn't get involved until Raf said, hey, this is what we want to do. So I'm fairly new to the, the industry as well. Okay, so then that's good to know. So what I'm wondering is there's certain people in the United States that like me are not involved in cannabis and they've their whole lives have been against cannabis right and then there's other people that are saying no you know we should be for everyone it's it's beautiful we should it should all be legal so how do you how do you have a conversation now with people that are very resistant to legalize marijuana to the movement that's happening in the United States right now where every state's you know about to make marijuana legal yeah that's a good question okay so when we first came out I was very hesitant because a lot of people were so against cannabis. And as we slowly got in, especially in Washington state, as we slowly morphed into legalization and it kind of the market developed and, and, you know, had, had its own brain in mind, literally the first people that were really connected to our hemp CBD and cream or any topicals were people that we went to church with. And it was a lot of older people like uh, around my grandmother's age, people like my parents, 
they see consuming cannabis as putting it on a lot of topicals. And so to them, they're not smoking weed, they're not doing oil, but they're still consuming cannabis in some form or fashion. And so that's why you see a lot of topicals because that's like the first entry to cannabis is, oh, you know, I use it for the ointment. Then the next stage is, yeah, well, you know, I ate an edible or had, you know, I had some uh, some gummies. And the next stage is, well, you know, I had some oil and the oil was good. And, you know, so as this conversation continues to, to um, change, I think a lot of people are understanding that some pharmaceutical drugs are not good for them and it's hurting them. I've seen my mom use a lot of prescription drugs and replace those with cannabis oil, just natural remedies. I mean, this is a plant that comes out of the ground and we grow it with our hands and I've seen it firsthand help people. And so as this conversation continues to go and people are you know, exploring plant living, plant lifestyle, plant-based diet, or whether that's you know cannabis in some form on a topical or consuming it with the edible, I think we're gonna see a shift, a massive shift in the country where people are moving towards that. So leading up to that, given that you and your family are, are you the, are you the only black owned cannabis farmer in the country or are there other others? We're not the only, we know uh, most of them. There are a lot of hemp companies popping up uh, east of the Mississippi, which is amazing, you know, which we're so happy about that are growing hemp. But, you know, there are some, you know, that we know of and that we've connected with, but I can literally count them on my hand. And that's because the barriers of entry are so high to get into the industry for people of color. And so that's something that people struggle with. I tell people all the time, our story is very different than others. The stars really align to get where we are. And we're, we're happy about that and proud about that. But we know that because we were one of the first that we have a responsibility to hold ourselves at a higher standard than others to be able to set an example for others to inspire to get into the industry. So when you talk about responsibility, are you moving towards having conversations around advocacy at a political level, at a national level, or what's your involvement in a space like that? Yeah, when we first started, we were just trying to get established. We were trying to just, you know, figure out what the heck we're doing. And then after we have kind of got our feet settled and we're continuing to grow the brand, now we're talking about that advocacy piece and that social equity and that restorative justice piece. But that takes time. And so right now we're still trying to figure out, it's a delicate balance, how to still be profitable, how to still make money to be able to fund that advocacy work because we know a lot of that advocacy work, there's no, there's it's not a monetary value money in that, but you have to find something to be able to continue to fund that. And so that's why we're trying to figure out what that looks like with giving back you know, to the community, college scholarships, you know, that's kind of our angle just because our grandmother was so heavy influenced with us about education and knowing that that helps, you know, create different lives for people. And then also too, a big thing is entrepreneurship. We're huge on that. Getting more people of color into the industry, whether it not be, maybe they don't touch the plant, maybe it's a technology company. Maybe they learn about how to packaging. Maybe they're a lawyer. Maybe they're figuring out the legal side of it or logistics. You know, you don't have to just, you don't have to touch the plant to be in the industry. And so we're trying to expose more of those avenues for people who want to be involved, don't know how, maybe don't want to grow and don't care about that, but want to figure out the logistics behind uh, getting the cannabis to the consumer. So on the advocacy side that you're talking about, are you primarily focused on African-American or women or is it advocacy in general with the cannabis conversation in the United States? No, it's predominantly black folks. 
uh, women as well. I'm passionate about uh, women because I'm obviously, I'm female, but black people for sure. I really like that you mentioned that you don't have to touch the plant to be involved in the industry because it, it, it rings a bell for me as far as supply chain goes. So how do you approach plugging yourself into the supply chains of other companies? Are all of your products consumer facing? Um, what does the wholesale side of your business look like? And how do you share that information with uh, small business owners? Yeah, so the, the biggest thing that we've learned um, during the cannabis industry is that everyone that have reached out to us have said, hey, I have land, or I, you know, I wanna have a store, or I wanna do this, this, and this. And the biggest thing we tell them the first thing is local government what is your local government doing currently figure out what those laws because people think that oh the president can shut you down or no your local government can shut you down immediately okay so that's the first thing people need to do what their local government's doing what are the cannabis laws what does that look like and then you have to realize what each state is doing so for example in colorado you can be vertically integrated so that means that you can sell direct to consumer. You can be, you can grow it, you can process it, you can have a store and you can sell it direct to consumer. In Washington state, we're set up a little bit differently. You cannot be vertically integrated. We have a producer processor license. We're not allowed to have and own and operate a store to get direct to consumer. So because that's set up like that, you have a disconnect or that gap in between a producer processor and then getting out to stores. So what that means are there are a lot of businesses in our industry in 502 that are maybe a delivery service, maybe they're a marketing service, or maybe they um, are the communicate, maybe they do sales, you know? Um, it's, so it's very, it's very different in each state. California set up similarly the same way. Um, they also, you can be vertically integrated, but they also have different licenses where you could just be distribution, where you could just be a retail. Maybe you just want to do delivery, you know, where you don't have all those upfront costs and you can just do delivery. It really depends on each state. Every state is not the same. So wherever you're at, you have to figure out what those local laws are first to be able to figure out how you can tap into the industry and what your best fit in your niche is. So on the topic of upfront costs, that's a huge barrier to entry for a lot of people. There's a lot of equipment, there's land, there's right. supplies, there's licensing and all these hoops to jump through. Is your farm completely funded through your family or have you are you involved with any sort of VC, you know, venture, any sort of venture capital or? Right. No. So we took all of our uh, dad's retirement. We pried it from his hands and we said, hey, dad, uh, this is what we're going to do. And we used all that money and we were able to take that money, get through the first harvest. Whatever funds we had left, we just propelled it to the next one. So we were very hand to mouth and we were able to do that because we didn't take a salary for six, seven years. And then we had a lot of family and friends who helped donate their time. And, you know, we'd cook them meals, give them a little something on the side, whatever you needed. And that helped us get to where we are. And now you see our farm today where we have these beautiful greenhouses. We have a you know beautiful fence, a great security system. It wasn't always like that. We started with plants in the ground and now we have them actually in bags with soil. And it was definitely building on the way up. If we were to start over, would I have liked to do it like that? Yes, and here's why. We've learned so much about each other because that was by far the most challenging thing you could ever possibly do. Farming tests your soul, it tests your spirit, and it tests your inner being. And to be able to grow something with your hands, not knowing what the weather's gonna be like, the rain, humidity, all these different factors that come into that, and then, then to be successful. 
you know, is like one of the greatest achievements, uh, probably besides being a single parent, uh, you could possibly do in life. Speaking of your, your friends and family and, and it testing your soul, the thing that strikes me the most about your branding and your company is the playful nature of your brand's personality, which is not something that I often see around cannabis brands. There's a very high tech feeling, but there's also a very playful and futuristic feeling. Right. What was the inspiration for approaching your branding that way? Being ourselves, you know, the thing is, is that we know that we're just staying in our lane. Our lane is black owned and operated, a family. We embrace it, we love it, we don't shy away from that. I think people can see through authenticity, they can see realness, they can see us at the farm actually growing people's cannabis, trimming it and, and giving it to them. And we're very transparent about that because I feel like people, they are yearning for something like that because there is this large, um, I don't wanna say cloud, but like curtain over the cannabis industry where you're like, okay, where is it coming from? How is it grown? Does it have pesticides in it? What type of soil did you use, your pH? Millennials are very smart. They wanna know a lot about who's growing their stuff. What does it look like? How is it gonna affect me? We're, we're, we're always trying to get more information to make those uh, you know, very particular uh, decisions based on how we um, uh, consume can cannabis. So, you know, it was just, we're just us. We're just, you know, we're just trying to be uh, the Hollingsworth family. So it's who we are every day. I was watching some of the videos and I loved hearing you and your brother and I loved hearing your laughter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just thought that that just really lifted my spirit, especially because like I said earlier, um, cannabis to me is a little bit, you know, confusing, but you have so much confidence with this work. How did you get this? I mean, did you, did you grow up? I mean, you're talking about touching the soil and growing things with your hands. And right. Was this an experience that you've had that you didn't know about until later in life? Because I'm looking at your bio, of course, and you played professional basketball in Athens. Yeah, that was fun. I yeah. mean, like, you know, you're talking about seeds and, you know, pesticides. Um, so right. Where did this, like, love of nature come from? Uh, it was forced on me. You know, look, when Raph said he wanted, <laughs> it was forced, I'm telling you. When Raph, and I, you know, I'm a quick learner. Look, when Raph said he wanted to do this, right, it felt like this whole time, the last six, seven years, have felt like we were pushed off a cliff and building a plane on the way down. That's what it's felt like. Didn't know how to drive a plane or fly a plane. Don't know where the cockpit is. Don't know anything. And we've just figured stuff out. But on the flip side of that, is that I feel like, and this might sound weird because some people, you know, they think cannabis is drugs and God, God's been on our side since day one. Like there's no, there's, we are standing on our ancestors' shoulders. They have walked with us for the entire time that we're doing this. And I think a large part of it is because we're very self-conscious about how we treat people, how we uh, connect with people and building relationships, and then also really big on giving back to the community because those are the people that lift us up. There's not a moment in time where I can see someone and they're like, yo, like we just love what you're doing or we connect with you or we, you know, we mess with you, girl. Like we just love what you're doing. So yeah, it was, you know, we figured it out. You know, I, I now I love growing. I love making stuff. I love all that. So how have you taken the company on, a mar on the marketing side to another level? Because I definitely can, hear your passion and you're a, an amazing communicator. How have you been able to transform the company from, you know, building the plane 
as you're flying down on the, the way cliff. down. Well, right. Well, <laughs> I'm coming from you guys. You guys have amazing branding. The Honest Phil God. Oh, I'm looking you. at your logo. It's dope. Um, we're just trying to compete. You know, we know that your branding, your social media, we know that that means something. People, that's the first. That's like the front porch of your company. People see that first, and then they can tell, well, what's going on in the house. And so we wanted to make sure that when people see our front porch, which is our social media, that they see some good stuff. And that's like just honest pictures of our family. And uh, you know, when we first started, we were kind of nervous to come out to show people that we were black owned because we there was nobody like us at the time in terms of the recreational legal market so we were scared we said you know should we and then finally we just embraced it and we're unapologetically black that's just the angle that we're going people have been very receptive to that and uh you know we embrace that and that's how we we continue with our our branding with your business in the state of washington do you think that this experience is translatable to other states and I think specifically Illinois, because in Illinois, January 1st, marijuana is going to be, cannabis is going to be legal, but women don't have a license in Illinois. They're not part of that, you know, initial 10, and they're really trying to lobby right now to get a license. And African Americans are also working really hard to try to get a license. Do you think that you'd be able to translate this to Illinois, or would you be able to use your expertise to advise people in Illinois. I mean, what does this look like? Because I feel like I want you in Illinois. Oh, I want you. your company there <laughs> because we need black people doing this in our state. Right. Let me just say this. We knew that our farm was the proof of concept. Think about this. If we can grow in Washington state where we're fighting humidity, we're fighting rain, uh, we're fighting a whole bunch of climate stuff that's going on up here, and we chose to grow in a greenhouse. Some people grow indoors. We wanted to go the greenhouse route primarily because we couldn't afford to be in a warehouse. That was like the biggest thing. And then the second thing was that we're very conscious about having a low carbon footprint. So we wanted to be, we wanted to farm and, and be outside. But we feel like we could take this business model and put this in any state in the country and be successful because we're able to grow for such a, a low price per gram and be able to uh, transfer that and be sustainable, but also be successful. So yeah, of course we'd love to be outside the state of Washington, but we're just trying to figure out what that looks like and who to partner with to be able to bring uh, black folks to different industries. We know a lot of people are doing great work, like Caninclusive, they're trying to get people into the industry. Viola Cannabis, uh, they're doing a great job. They're black owned and operated and, and getting out there. And uh, Gas House, they're doing a great job. We're just, we're just trying to find our niche and, and help people as well. What lessons can you share with a black own small businesses about carving out their own lane be yourself you know don't don't shy away from your blackness don't shy away from your honesty and treat people well I think the biggest thing that I've seen the last six years is we have only been able to be successful because of the relationships that we've had and that we've created with people and connection and staying in touch and handwritten notes and checking in on people. Like it's that people are, they are craving relationships. And so finding your niche, making sure that you treat people the way you wanna be treated, and then also just being unapologetically black, being yourself, and just making sure that you stay in that lane and do that really, really well. And that's like the one, like the three biggest things I can think of right now. Speaking of connections, I have to know how you met 
the legend Anthony Bourdain. Ah! How did that introduction happen? Crazy. Okay, so look, their production company hit us up on Facebook. We did not respond because we didn't know what was going on because they didn't say who they were. So we were just like, okay, here's some people, you know, we don't know. Well, finally, after a month goes by, then they finally call the office. We respond back and they say, hey, you know, they didn't say who they were and they kept saying, uh, Tony, you know, we want you to have dinner with Tony and, you know, we were gonna do a Seattle series and we're like, what are you, what are you talking about? Who's Tony? We don't know a Tony. So anyways, they said, hey, we wanna come out to your farm to see it. The producers come out, they take an Uber to the farm, okay? From Seattle all the way to Sheldon. That's 90 minutes, they're like back. Light flex, light flex. Yo, and we're like, yo, you guys showed up in an Uber. Uber driver comes out, he was like, yo, where am I? What's going on? We're like, hey, surprise. They don't get cell service because it's very spotty. And they walk in and you see a field of green because we have all the greenhouses uh, lined up and we have the sides rolled up. So all you can see are plants and flowers. And they said, okay, this is, we're coming back here. And we're like, well, who's coming back here? He was like, oh, uh, Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain. And my brother was like, no effing way. And he was like, no, 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 we're gonna come back here. This is the director, uh, Nick, and then the producer, Helen. And we just said, okay, we still didn't believe it. And then finally they sent us a, a date to show up at this restaurant in Seattle and Mam Noon, shout out to Mam Noon, they're a Lebanese place, they're family owned and operated, uh, they're amazing food. We went to the restaurant, he shows up, we're like still kinda in shock and awe, and it was an amazing experience. He smoked a ton of our weed, he was super lit at the table, Raph was a little tipsy, I was the only one who didn't do anything because I said, hey, I ain't gonna be like that, and it was cool. Someone has to keep the coherent conversation going. You got to. Wow, that is amazing. They just found you, and I'm sure that your presentation, your branding, and your consistency has a lot to do with that. And I think that what's great about this story, a lot of us have trouble making those high-level connections like that. Right. And if we do, and when we do, some of us are ready and some of us aren't. But you all are ready for it. I mean, you were completely ready for that kind of an opportunity, which I think is a lesson for all of us that you just have to keep going forward because, you know, you talking about building the plane as you're, you know, trying to learn to fly it, <laughs> but still you maintained your integrity around it, your experience, your professionality, you know, your branding was strong. So I think that those are lessons that we all need to keep in mind. All entrepreneurs need to keep those kinds of things in mind because I think that a lot of times we're so busy in the business that we forget about the things that you said earlier, um, the networking, the presentation on the outside, you know, your branding. So um, that was just right. really beautiful. I, I feel like we could have another long conversation around. We need to. We should because we really need to talk about. It's done. We need to talk about black self determination. We yeah. need to talk about the prison complex. We I need, need to, to talk a story about that farm. I mean, you know, like farming. You know, your you know your your ancestors were slaves. And now you're farming again, and it's, right. it's an industry that's you're in the right place at the right time because. Personally, I think you guys are heading towards billionaire status. Keep going. Let's do well, it. Let's oh just, gosh! Can we manifest? Yeah, we can manifest it. We're 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 blessed, and you know, hopefully, Let's we get it. to to a certain level where we can be successful and give back to the community, but also inspire other people to get into the industry. Wow, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Joy, for Thank you. sharing all of your stories and your knowledge and, and being so authentically black and authentically yourself and sharing your family story. Uh, this is an amazing facility. We can't wait to see your farm. I'm Esther. I'm Ginger. I'm Joy. And this is the Honest Field Guide. We'll talk to you next time.
The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikoro. Thank you.